0: And uh, do turn with me to Joel and chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, as we continue in our series entitled, The Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets. Uh, We began Joel last time. And uh, from there we were able to appreciate that Joel lived in the context of uh, Judah. That's fairly evident from um, uh, his mentioning Jerusalem quite a number of times and alluding to the temple itself. So that helps us to appreciate that he... Uh, is one that is at least quoted in uh, the New Testament in the book of Acts, and we will go there today because it is in the context of uh, um, Joel and chapter 2. What is Joel's main message? It is a message that is saying God's judgment is about to come upon you the people of Judah. Uh, Apparently, the judgment has already come upon the rest of Jerusalem, rather the rest of Israel, through the Assyrians, and now he is warning the people of Judah that the same is about to come upon them. And therefore, he is calling them to heartfelt repentance very real repentance not just the repentance of a few individuals as important as that might be but collective repentance uh, so that it it is evident that there has been a change of mind among the people of God and consequently that God might be gracious so that's one aspect Of uh, the message of Joel And then the other Which is the other side of the coin Is to say to the people of Israel God Is going to respond in mercy And in grace When you genuinely Repent of sin He will forgive He will bless you There will be a time of refreshing That will come But you first of all Need to repent what we would have noticed <clears throat> was that uh, chapter 1 basically went through those same uh, sections. We had uh, the Joel pleading with the people that judgment is coming. We had him telling them to repent, genuinely repent. And, then, and that was from about verse 13 going down and then he was also telling them of God's mercy, that God was going to pardon. Well, that's exactly what we begin to notice in chapter 2. So what we will do is, again, we will go through that and bear in mind that this is God's message to us. Not just to a people that lived some three years, perhaps 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, but to us as well today. And we may not be the people of Israel, but we, as God's people in the 21st century, also have a tendency to backslide individually. We also have a tendency to backslide collectively. And therefore, we need to hear God speaking to us as he spoke to a previous generation, that we too may heed his word and consequently repent and experience his goodness. Apart from that, it is to recognize that the New Testament that we are currently a part of is born out of God's judgment upon his Old Testament The people of uh, Israel who had sinned against him, God was saying, Okay, your, your hearts have been hardened. I'm going to come up with another covenant. And the covenant that I'm going to come up with is one that will deal with the heart and will have an effusion of the spirit, and consequently, it will be a better day. And therefore, for us to rejoice in the times in which we are. We are not in the same times as uh, uh, Saul and David and Solomon and Elijah and even Joel and Hosea. we're living in. We are living in days of, of plenty being poured out, from heaven. So those two aspects, I hope, will be evident as we begin today. Chapter 2 begins with um, a call to awaken Judah because of approaching punishment from God. And also mentions the ones that God was going to use in order to punish the people of God in Judah. And so let's quickly read verse 1 and verse 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And that already tells you the holy mountain is uh, Zion and that is in Judah. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. I mentioned to you last time that this phrase, the day of the Lord, is referring to the day when the Lord will come in judgment. When he will come to punish in such a way that you would have never ever experienced before. And it was always futuristic. It's coming. For the day of the Lord is coming. And he says here, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Now that is now referring, obviously, to the coming of the Babylonians. And it is, they are referred to as a great and powerful people. Perhaps the best way to capture this is if you can imagine that you live in a valley and you know that your mountain is normally green or if it's in the dry season, it is brown. And then one day you look up and it is black, covered with a black cloth. And clearly, it is not a black cloth. It is a huge army that is beginning to descend upon you. In this particular case, it was Mount Zion being on top and then seeing this black cloth that is coming towards them. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations and we are told something of the kind of effect they have had on other nations where they have already been listen to this fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of eden before them in other words before they come it's it's nice it's rich it's fresh it's refreshing It is green. Now listen to this. But behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The amount of damage they leave behind, he is saying, is completely indescribable. Now, again, it's a matter of putting ourselves in their shoes. It's one thing if you are hearing about an earthquake in Turkey and you are hidden away safely in Zambia. It's quite another if that's where you wake up and you discover that all those apartments around you that at one time helped you to decide on where you are going and directions and so on are now completely flat. That's when you went to sleep, they were, as it were, the uh, ancient buildings that you boasted of. And then now the individuals that were in them are all buried under them. It's quite different the way you respond. This message was to the people of Judah themselves. And they are being told that life as you know it now will be very, very different when this nation comes through. All that is green and refreshing is going to be turned into a desolate wilderness. You can understand the terror that is coming into the hearts and minds of these people. And uh, uh, Joel goes on to describe something of the way in which this entire army of Israel appears like and the effect that they have on those who see them when they arrive. Listen to this. Verse 4, literally all the way to verse 9. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle before them people are in anguish that's what happens when the chaldeans or the babylonians when they arrive all faces grow pale like warriors They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. He's talking to the very people that are in front of him, and he is saying, here is the trouble. It is coming. They are an awful army. And he ends this section by using poetic language To show something of their full potency The the indescribable power That these people are and have And reminding them that it is not them It is the day of the Lord which is coming Verse 10 and 11 The earth quakes before them The heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, remember, this is poetic language. I, I warned you the very first time when we were uh, beginning Joel that it's poetic, and therefore not everything that is said by Joel must be taken literally. This is meant to show something of the, the power that is coming to invade them. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. Can you imagine? He's referring to the Babylonians as God's army, as the camp, That is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. In other words, it's God himself who is coming to do this. And there it is. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it. Remember our application. God was punishing the people of Israel here. Because of idolatry. Primarily because instead of keeping a covenant, a clear covenant between themselves and God, giving him their entire devotion and trusting in him alone, they had now accumulated to themselves idols. And those idols were the ones to whom they had given their hearts. Those idols are the ones in whom they had put their trust. And God was jealous for his glory. He had already punished the other ten tribes, and now he was also punishing, or at least warning the people of Judah that he's coming to do the same, to punish them, Because of their idolatry. Let's not forget that. Because otherwise, we will be, as it were, watching a movie from the ancient past. When we ourselves today have our idols, our lives are occupied with either chasing after money, or whatever else it might be, and God is in the second place. That when it comes to who we are trusting for our future, it's not God. It is government, it is our jobs, it is our parents, it is whatever else it might be, that which has taken the place of God in the hearts and lives of his people. And obviously it can be seen from empty church buildings, empty prayer meetings, empty wherever it is that it is to do with God because God's people are kneeling before other altars. That's where their actual devotion and trust is. When you begin to think about it that way, you begin to realize that this is an actual danger we are in and God's judgment, can easily fall the power that god uses in order to bring that temporal judgment upon his people we never know but when that punishment comes it causes even god's people to tremble to realize we were utterly unprepared for what god is able to do. How should we respond to this? When God's voice is heard warning God's people that they are in mortal danger, that God cannot live with His people giving their hearts to something other than himself that he must punish as we learned in Hosea what should our response be? The right response is in the words of Joel from verse 12 downwards and basically it is come back come back Come back to that innocent, monogamous relationship with me. Come back. Give me your heart. And come back in genuine repentance. Come back with mourning and weeping as we saw last week. Look at this from verse 12 down to verse 14. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. It should not merely be an outward show. No. And it's obvious because God sees the heart. He sees the heart. He knows where there is genuine repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. And that's where our only hope lies, in the character of God. That the God who is holy, the God who is just, the God who must punish sin, is also a gracious God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And here is the hope. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering, For the Lord your God. Who knows? There may be hope. You know, in in homes, when we grow up together, we get to know one another as we grow up. And uh, you will find that with certain characters... The, the offender will say something like this, no, no, there's no way. There's no way I, I can even go there and begin the subject. There's no way. I'll die. You know? He'll kill me. She'll she pour boiling cooking oil on me. I can't. It's better someone else goes and pleads for me. And then there are other individuals who people will say, uh, yeah, yeah no. My brother, uh, you, you, you go and just, just tell him. I, I know him, trust me. I know him. If you come openly to admit whatever it is you've done, you can be sure that uh, he, he will accept. He's, he, he's a very merciful, uh, gracious, uh, benevolent uh, individual. You go. I, I grew up with him. He's like that. Now, that's... That's basically what is happening in this particular text. It's, uh, this is the God who is there. If if you humble yourself, if you lick the dust, as it were, if if you go before him with genuine weeping and and, and mourning and, and, as it were, tearing your heart rather than your garment, you can be sure you will find pardon with God. Go that way. And again, blow the trumpet in Zion. Literally where we began. Chapter 2, verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Chapter 2, verse 15, we are back at it again. And this time he's really saying, not simply sound an alarm... But call everybody together. Bring together a solemn assembly. This must not just be this one in his own home and that other one in his own home and that other one in his own home. This is now us gathering together in order to fast together, to weep together, to seek God together. Therefore, we must even be led by the elders of Judah. Blow the trumpet in Zion, again, that is around Jerusalem. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants, Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. In other words, yes, as important as this wedding might be, and they are preparing for it, halt everything and bring everyone. Bring everyone. Not just the adults, but also the babies and children. And those that are preparing for their weddings, and they're about to go for their wedding. Let them all come out. Let this be a a priority to the entire community. And for the church leaders, remember in chapter 1, we had that they should bring words, come with words. Here it is again, verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar... Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. These are the words that are being spoken to God. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? as this huge army comes and wreaks havoc across Judah, across Jerusalem, destroying even the temple in the process, obviously people will be saying, where is their God? Surely, wasn't their God the mighty one? who brought them out of Egypt and destroyed all the nations ahead of them? How come this one nation now has come and done all this to them? And these are the leaders that are consequently praying. Again, before we move into the next section, it's worth us pausing for a moment and saying, that's the problem with the church. The problem with the church is not so much a problem of one or two people. It is a collective problem where, remember I used the example of leprosy, that parts of the body are falling off and nobody seems to be concerned about it. It seems to just be taken that such is life. So, idolatry becomes so commonplace that even the church leaders begin to accept it. This is is life. This is life. What we have in this text is Joel saying, wake up everybody. Everybody from the top downwards. Make this the subject, make this the, the, the priority of the entire community of God's people. Work them up so that the, 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 the whole body may as it were, be crying to the Lord for mercy before his judgment falls. That the very leaders, the priests, the ministers of the Lord should be the ones in the forefront praying, crying, weeping that God might visit us not in judgment but in mercy. Yes, we can have one or two people backsliding. That's normal. Even in the days of the New Testament, you had individuals like Ananias and Sapphira who were cheating, and in the process, God's judgment fell upon them and not upon the rest of the church. But all of us know that the history of Asia Minor led by the church in Ephesus was that after those warnings that we have in the seven letters to the churches in Asia, that they were not heeded. And in the process, God's judgment fell. That's New Testament stuff. It is because The clear warnings of God, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That was not something they took seriously as leaders of the church so that collectively the people of God may seek God for mercy and forgiveness. When he says you have lost your first love, he's not talking to just one person there and another person there who's lost their first love. It was collectively as a people of God. They had lost their first love. When he was saying that whereas you are poor, pitiable, and blind, you are busy boasting of the fact that you are wealthy, and so on and so forth, It wasn't one or two people. It was the collective culture of the church. And again, he says there, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. That's judgment. It's collective judgment upon the people. Today, you go to that same place, It's largely Turkey, and we know what is happening there, physically. But I do want to assure you that the spiritual side took place long ago. If there's a place you need to go and evangelize afresh today, it is that same place where the Apostle Paul did his work earlier. That can happen to us as well, brethren. It begins with a general acceptance of idolatry. Where God's people make him second. And they have their idols. Not of wood and stone. But as I said, I've been saying in the previous messages, it is idols that have been developed in a more subtle way. But that's where our true religion lies. So what is the right response to God's chastisement? In this particular case, the warning, the chastisement is coming. The right response is that of pleading for mercy. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, A byword among the nations. Well, what is God's response when God's people come in this way? How does He Himself respond? That's what the rest of this chapter is all about. And uh, with a few minutes, let me quickly take you through that. The basic message is this God will have mercy. God will have mercy. And Joel begins with what is called the prophetic history. Prophetic history. In other words, it is, he speaks of something that hasn't yet happened as if it has happened. And the reason why is because he is speaking about that which he is currently seeing in a vision. And listen to this. Verse 18 And verse 19. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, this is yet to happen, but Joel is speaking as if it has already happened. He speaks about the way in which God would deal with Babylon, the northern kingdom, rather the northern uh, nation that will be coming against the people of Israel. Look at verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. All he's saying here is that this nation that I'm going to use to come and as it were, spank you in the backside at the right time, I will come and deal with it also. But again, speaking as though this is the, the defeat of Jerusalem has already taken place, as if they've already been taken into uh, the land of captivity, and as if now is the time for God to come and deal with this. But I want to assure you, at the time Joel was speaking, Zion was still intact. Their punishment hasn't yet come. But it is the prophetic eye that stands at a certain point in history where, in fact, the clock itself has not yet reached. Again, in verse 21, going downwards, you've got this glorious prophetic history in Poetic language all the way to verse 27. Listen to this. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. he hasn't done it yet. It's just a few verses earlier when we're hearing him saying, I'm bringing punishment. But this is because when God speaks, what he says is a certain. As though it was yesterday. It's a certain, I mean, history is history. He's in control of all things. So he's able to speak like that. Fear not, you beasts of the field. He's obviously not talking to beasts, but this is poetic language. For the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Again, whether he was going to actually send grasshoppers as his army, or the grasshoppers are simply a picture showing What this army is coming to do, because when locusts pass through, what was once a green field is reduced to stalks only. Everything that could be eaten has been eaten. So whether this is picture language or not, the bottom line is that you are going to have a glorious day that is going to come. Verse 26, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Remember what the the ministers were praying earlier. This was their prayer. Spare your people, O Lord, And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. That's verse 17. That's what they are crying to God for. Lord, spare us of this shame. And God is now saying here that that shame will not happen. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. That's God promising mercy. But notice, it's conditioned on repentance. Heartfelt repentance. And that's what Joel is pleading for. Repent, and you will know a spiritually nourishing, refreshing season from heaven. Repent, people of Judah. The last part is a little surprising because... If it wasn't quoted in the book of Acts, we probably may have missed that this is referring to the new covenant. In other words, the ultimate fulfillment of what Joel is talking about in this chapter is not going to happen when the Israelites who are in the land of captivity are brought back it will be partly fulfilled. They were going to be brought back. After the Assyrian captivity, there was the Babylonian captivity, and then after the Babylonian captivity, there came the Medes and the Persians, and during the Medes and the Persians, a remnant was sent back to the promised land to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And even to rebuild the temple, they were sent back there. And in one sense, that is what is being fulfilled. But that's a drop in the ocean. The main fulfillment of this is the New Testament church, or better still, the effusion of the Holy Spirit the giving of the Holy Spirit through whom there will be new life that will be released upon the whole earth so that God's people will no longer simply be that little nation in the Middle East. It's going to be everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Because the Spirit will be given in the New Testament sense. And in that sense, a glorious day is coming. Far more exceedingly abundant than any Israelite would have ever guessed. Let me read it to you. And then I will take you to Acts chapter 2. Verse 28 down to verse 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And all flesh there includes Gentiles, by the way. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the males and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood, and here it is again, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there it is again. He is primarily ministering to Judah. There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, escaping the the great and awesome day of the Lord which is coming. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's quickly turn to our last text for today, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. This one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Who are these? The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And suddenly there came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Notice that, eh? from every nation under heaven, worshippers of God. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue or language? Perthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes. And proselytes would be Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now here it is. But Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And exactly the same way that uh, we read Joel in a, earlier on until verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all that Peter does is now to expound this to show that what Joel spoke about is now being fulfilled. Well, brethren, let's put it in this category. It's the mercy of God. That right in the midst of a sinful and stubborn people, an idolatrous people, as he sends his messengers, is not simply sending a message of judgment, but it's also a message of mercy for those who repent. And a mercy that far exceeds our wildest imagination. The people that Joel was speaking to would have never thought that the message that is being said, spoken to them is that there's going to be a worldwide Revival. That was the last thought on their minds. But that's what he was saying with that prophetic view. Somebody described the way in which uh, prophets looked, rather prophesied. They described it like a person who is on a road. Maybe you are going from Lusaka to Kabwe, and you get to that stretch. You know that stretch where for 20 minutes... You can even fall asleep just going straight. And uh, there are little hills and bigger hills. And there is a huge mountain range at the end. from where you are standing, they look like they're just next to each other until you start driving. And then you start, when you get there, you discover that between one mountain range and another, there's actually a lot of distance. And further next to that final one, there's even a greater distance. But from where you were initially standing, they looked like they were just next to each other. And that that's the way the prophets looked into the future. They themselves did not realize the time difference between one thing they were speaking about and the other. They just talked about them as though they were next to each other. Until history arrived, and then you discovered that you had a thousand years, maybe even two thousand years, in between those events. So when Joel was speaking, he would have had no idea that between that first coming back into the promised land, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, between that and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that there would be actually this length of time. He had no idea. He was standing in that prophetic point and simply looking. But we are advantaged because we are on the opposite end of history. And that's why I said, For us, we ought to be rejoicing that that which was once a promise, for us, it's fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has been poured abundantly. We are Gentiles here, Gentiles, all of us, and yet we are on the inside. We are the people of God. We are those, to borrow the words of uh, Uh, Joel here, we are those where it says, and shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So then brethren, let's make sure we don't waste this grand mercy of God that has come to us profusely by his Spirit. Let's not waste it. We Our forefathers lived many years on this continent before the New Testament, the New Covenant was given. They did not have the privilege we have today to know him personally, to have our sins forgiven by him, to to, to love him with our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, with everything about us. In a monogamous relationship, with our God, kicking away all those idols, the physical ones that our forefathers lived by, and then the more modern ones that often grip the lives even of the people of God. Let's love Him, let's rejoice in this God for who He is, as He has brought us in after the death. Of his own son. We're not giving. Animals. In the place of worship. He has already given. His own son. And after that. The son went back to glory. And has sent. His Holy Spirit. That which we can now witness. Even in this place. Let's kick out. Any form of idolatry, instead of bringing on ourselves the judgment of God, let us live for him and for him alone. Amen.